Hello and welcome to the Modern Day Rebel Podcast, the podcast that tells the stories of pioneers who actively create the lives they want to live. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, hello, my name is Julia Frank and I'm the host of this podcast. I am fascinated by the question of how we can live both better and more meaningful lives. Essentially what this means is that I explore how we can live life on our own terms without having to make any drastic daredevil changes. Whether you're employed, run your own business, work as a freelancer, or whatever your situation might be, this podcast mission is to highlight the approach of those who live life a little bit more unconventionally to show you that you can too. Each week I sit down with a modern day rebel from a range of different personal backgrounds and industries to chat about why they decided to live life differently, what living life on their own terms looks like, and most importantly, how they managed to do so in the first place. In today's episode, I sit down with Callum Goodwilliam, who is a senior program manager at General Assembly. I met Callum a little over a year ago when I started to work with General Assembly and was immediately impressed in the way that he intentionally approaches every project. The other thing about working with him that is so refreshing to see is that he really loves his job. You can notice that in everything that he does, he has that optimism that he brings to work and he can be cynical at times as well, which he talks about in this episode. But it wasn't by coincidence that he ended up in this role. He really spent a lot of time trying to figure out what works best for him in his career. He started off in the arts, actually specifically fell kind of in love with improv and then realized that he probably should pivot into tech or become more involved in the tech industry. I really loved being able to sit down with Callum in a little bit more of a formal setting than we typically do to record this podcast. I hope you have some light bulb moments as well and I can't wait to get straight into the episode. Amazing. Well, thank you, Callum, so much for taking the time today to be on this podcast. Thanks very much. And kind of starting off, in your own words, what is it that you do or if you'd like to introduce yourself? Cool. So um, first of all, I guess um, my correct title is I'm a senior program manager for General Assembly, specifically in Europe. So my main work, I guess the main things that I do across all of my my role is about hiring, preparing, and, uh, and then working with all of our instructors across all of our different types of programs. So we have a range of different modalities, full-time, part-time, online, uh, uh, across a range of different courses as well, across tech, design, data. And I work in um, a relatively small team in on the European side of the organization, but across all of the delivery of the courses. So yeah, myself and a few others are responsible for getting our instructors in and then there are always people from the industry so there are people already working in for example software development or UX design data scientists they're working in those roles we then obviously bring them into to work with us um, we train them up uh, prepare them in, to go into the classroom and then they work with us on a variety of different types of programs and yeah look after them and the classroom experience kind of right from the point that a student enrolls all the way to the end of their course so kind of a very big big area. For those who aren't familiar with General Assembly, do you want to just say a bit about what General Assembly is? Sure. I mean, so GA has been around since about 2011 now, I believe. The the myth of its conception or the kind of the, the, the early genesis is that it was originally a co-working space. One of the requirements, if you were part of the co-working space, was that you had to take part in knowledge sharing sessions. And obviously, if you've worked in a startup or a small organization, you know, it's very often that you might have uh, already have your CTO in place, but you might not have your head of UX, or you might not have your head of product or your head of marketing. And so they found that this interest from these different organizations that might not have those roles in place yet to have knowledge sharing and sessions and kind of workshops being run by these people who were doing the job themselves was hugely popular right and that's kind of where it kind of blossomed out of and that there was a very short period at the very beginning of the company's history before it spun into like being a full-on learning and development organization and training organization but yeah it, it what started off our primary focus back in the day was uh, initially um, web development and then obviously that's expanded across a huge range of different programs and all basically all of it is about reflecting industry need so whatever the highest in-demand jobs in terms of the tech space uh, and in terms of the tools uh, and methods that are being used in these different industries that's kind of where the courses have come from so our team in terms of our team at HQ they work in partnership with subject matter experts across all these disciplines and they build out the content to reflect the needs of industry so 
essentially, if you're going through one of the, uh, particularly our career change programs, the idea is, is that you're learning tools that are in demand in the region that you're in, and that that will prepare you to go into a junior role in, in one of those disciplines as well. And you kind of mentioned that their GA is really big in kind of career change and facilitating and kind of helping with those skills, which is something in terms of how to design a career that you you love, essentially, I think I've read somewhere. We'll get into that a little bit later. But for the point of this podcast, why do you consider yourself a modern day rebel or why might someone else? Uh, I don't know if I do. What I do know is that I really like the work that I do. I feel very happy in where I am in my work. Um, I feel very fortunate that it's not without its challenges, which is also, I think, kind of part of the point. I don't think any job is perfect, but I really enjoy the work that I'm doing. I feel very fortunate to be doing it. And I guess I feel like I'm optimistic and cynical at the same time. So I think I'm an optimist and I think I'm a cynic. So I think I have spent a lot of my career path trying to figure out what works best for me, what makes me really happy in my work. I am fascinated by the tech space and the tech industry. I'm also quite cynical about the way life is packaged to people and how it's sold to people. So I'm a bit wary about that. So I don't know, we'll probably chat about that a bit more, but there's like, for me, I'm both kind of partly obsessed with the tech space and education and learning and also kind of not critical, but like a bit cynical as well. So like for me, being in a space where I can be involved in a kind of a very fast changing environment around learning and education in the tech space, where I'm working with a huge bunch of different people tremendously talented people who have so much different areas of expertise that really really works for me i don't think it maybe qualifies me as a rebel but uh, i don't know we'll, maybe we'll, we'll find out a bit more so you're you're currently at general assembly but kind of taking a step back how did you end up in a position where you you do have a job that you love i've talked to a few people about the path and like how i ended up doing the work i'm doing and if you'd asked me 10 years ago 15 years ago that this is where I'd be, I probably would have laughed at you. I would have had no idea that I would be doing something like this and enjoying it so much. But I think the the nice thing is that looking back, I can definitely spot a few moments along the way where I started to recognize either at that moment or trying to look ahead that what I thought I wanted to do or where I thought I was going to go, what I didn't feel the same way about it or my you know either my feelings had changed about it or the landscape had changed around me and yeah, there's definitely like a few junctures, which meant that I took just a different choice and and, and a few things that have kind of either opened up for me along the way or that I've just actively kept trying to find in the work that I do, I guess. Yeah, it always feels like it's easier to to look back and connect the dots rather than, than when you're in it or in the moment. But kind of... Infinitely easier. Yeah, infinitely easier. It makes a lot more sense looking back <laughs> on it. In terms of kind of identifying these little moments, I'm really interested in potentially one of the, the first ones that you actively remember where you're like, oh, I kind of might have to change my approach or maybe this isn't really for me. So before I went to university, I mean, and all through my life, I've always been interested in the arts in different capacities. So I did a lot of performing arts when I was younger. I was involved in kind of music, playing a few instruments. None of them, I would say particularly amazingly, but I was involved in lots of different capacities. So I was really interested in film, really interested in music, really interested in the arts. And I couldn't decide when I was kind of a teenager which route I was going to go down. I wanted to be an actor, or maybe I wanted to be a director, or I wanted to be a filmmaker, or maybe a musician. I didn't really know. So I tried to hedge my bets slightly when I went to university. And rather than specializing in becoming an actor going, or trying to go to a stage school, for example, or going to a film school specifically, I ended up going to university to kind of academically study both, right? So I, I did kind of a, a split honors. And I loved it. I, I really enjoyed it. But at the time, I wasn't sure which one was going to be for me. And I was, again, trying to kind of, I think, hedge my bets and keep my doors open. When actually, I don't think that was, if I had really wanted to pursue one or the other, that probably wasn't the right path, right? Most people choose one or the other and they just go for it and, and commit to it. And I gradually began to see that as I, as I kind of, as I studied. And I think one of the first, and we were chatting a little bit about this before, but like, I think one of the first moments for me was I'd never really struggled at school there were some things that I kind of felt obviously that I gravitated towards a bit more uh, and some things that I definitely found harder but I'd never really struggled one way or the other too much I kind of felt like I just got by and done okay right I wasn't by any means top of my class and everything I wasn't bottom of the class and anything either I was kind of just like doing fine without having to work too hard with it and I remember getting a very kind of clear slap around the face I would say in my like second my second year of university 
where I realized, well, well, I wasn't doing very well and, and very much recognize it was the first time that I realized that if I didn't work much harder and I didn't put in more effort, I was going to fail. So was that kind of your first encounter with the sense of, you can't see my air quotes, but uh, with the sense of failure of, oh my God, I've, I need to kind of cope with, with that as a possibility. It was the first time that I, I, I probably handled it in a constructive way, which is like, <laughs> like I, I doubled down and I kind of changed my, my, my habits and, and changed my efforts. And I worked harder than I had, I think ever worked at that point. It was the first time that I think that, that I think I was very deliberate in my intent. It was, it was the first time that I, I like, I recognized that I wasn't coping with it very well. And again, I don't think at the time I still when at that age, I still didn't realize I probably wasn't very good at coping with failure. Like that was definitely something that emerged in my mid twenties more so again, because I don't really feel like I'd ever failed too significantly. I feel like, you know, I was like, feel like I've come from a very privileged space, very supportive parents that really supported me through school, but I, I didn't realize how bad I was at, at coping with failure. I think it was like only in my twenties, I got into it. And how did you kind of realize that though? Honestly? I think after I finished university, I was kind of trying to figure out whether I was going to continue down the route of acting or, or film and all that kind of thing. And I went and lived in Canada for a year. I lived in Toronto. And whilst I was there, I got a bunch of different jobs working in kind of production and, and the arts and those kinds of bits and pieces. The big thing that changed me there was that I really fell into improv, which doesn't really have the same, in, in terms of London or the UK scene, it exists. There is certainly a, a an amazing scene, but to the same degree, or at least at that point, when I was that age, I hadn't seen it. I wasn't aware of it. Toronto has a huge improv scene. And, uh, you know, it's, a, I think, a much, it has a bigger footprint culturally in America, anyway, or North America, rather. And someone recommended me to go and do it. And go and, and I had obviously studied bits and pieces of it when I'd been doing kind of amateur performance when I was younger. But I didn't really know much about, hadn't studied it properly. And I was at the point where I wasn't really sure whether I should pursue acting. And the things that were starting to show themselves to me was that basically I was surrounded by people who were working exceptionally hard to try and do it, like working incredibly hard to try and get a break in, in, in the industry. And I looked at my effort and I like, and I was doing bits and pieces. I also was, I can remember just really having some terrible auditions and just like, like walking away from it and just hating the experience. And I started mapping the kind of thing of like, well, going to be an actor you have to be able to cope with rejection like literally uh, so much of an actor's life is about is about just auditioning it relentlessly and so many of those auditions not coming through and i found that process incredibly hard it struck me at that point that i didn't and maybe i didn't either have the drive for it or that my perception of what i thought that life was going to be like was different was was much different so all these things were kind of happening and it was a very short space of time i was in canada for like a year but i had the most amazing time and in that time i fell into improv and was like ah i really love this it appears very simple on the surface there or it can appear like absolute magic on the surface it's wonderfully complicated and also very simple at the same time it has tons of rules that as you understand it more and more you get to see how the kind of magic of the illusion of it works right and i had never been very interested in Shakespeare. And when I finished university and I was trying to think what's next for me, one of the things that obviously was coming up was like, well, I, like I'd been involved in doing teaching for amateur dramatics at a junior level and I'd been doing it all the way through my teens. And I started kind of thinking, well, should I go down the teaching route? Should I go and be a qualified teacher? But I couldn't shake the fact that I didn't like Shakespeare, right? And if drama or theatre was going to be one of the things that I would train in, how would I be like a good teacher if I had to do something that I hated every year without fail, churning out that kind of content in the syllabus, right? And that's one of the hard things about traditional learning environments, right? The capacity to update the content, change it, bring in new ideas. And so this was like a real sticking point for me in my early 20s about should I be a teacher or shouldn't I? Would I be any good? Would I be a fraud? And what planted that seed in terms of in terms of teaching as a thing? Or, or is that kind of a natural progression? Because I had always been doing, like, so I had been involved in amateur dramatics and, and performing arts from about the age of 11 or 12, right? And I'd been doing it outside of school as well, little bits in school. Um, I then started to get involved in kind of doing some voluntary and then a bit of paid work in my teenage years, like supporting younger classes. So from like 16 to 20, I'd already been involved in like starting to do teaching. And I didn't really, again, 
label it as that at the time i was just getting i feel i was just getting experience and getting to do something that i really liked but as i got into my early 20s and then was looking at post-university options obviously then looking back at that i had been involved in it in quite quite a bit so it felt like and also i had friends starting to do it right that you know obviously post-university lots of op- options as people start to go into you know various routes into either industry or, or training and specialism and i had a lot of friends that were going down the teaching route so i just i was asking myself that question about whether I would be good enough, whether I would enjoy it, uh, and those kinds of things. And that time in Canada studying improv, I was like, ah, this is the one bit that I am, I just absolutely love. Like I find it, you know, keeps me really interested and say, I could do it every day and it doesn't feel like work remotely. And I took that and took my interest in that. And when I came back to the UK, um, I started working in the nonprofit sector, I was working back in my hometown in a, it, it, for a small organization, one full kind of um, charitable organization called The Hive that did loads of, there, obviously in my hometown, it's quite small. There wasn't a whole lot of film and acting opportunities. And by that point, I was already kind of, I feel on the fence about it regardless. But there was opportunity to work with schools and organizations that were supporting young people outside of schools around organizations like The Hive were doing this kind of work. And I was starting to get involved with that and doing facilitation and running workshops. And I then started to also run improv for young people because there wasn't really, there were theater companies and theater clubs, but there wasn't anything specifically just dedicated to learning this. So I did that for a couple of years in in my mid twenties, whilst I was still doing kind of a range of different kind of program um, delivery and building a set of skills that I like, now that I look back at it, that's where I started to kind of build a whole bunch of overlapping skills that were connected that would basically start to take me into this space but at the time i had not like again had no idea i was just trying to figure out what was the next move for me and so i kind of shifted from i don't think acting is right for me i don't think that this life style i don't think i'm possibly motivated in the in well enough at this point in my life i'm not sure i'm good enough to kind of cope with this current like what is required of me to be good at it what other things are close to this space that i care about and i also maybe that's the the other part is like, I didn't want to do something that I didn't care about. I want to get stuck into that because I think it's a really interesting one where you were saying, you know, you have to you have to cope with dealing with a lot of rejections. You go to these auditions and a lot of what you're what you're hearing is no, if you're hearing something at all. One of the things that I kind of want to talk about is where was that balance between or where was that realization when you were like, you know what, this isn't for me, but you could differentiate that from that really shitty feeling of like, ooh, that was rejection that really stung. And almost how could you differentiate the feeling between that was a terrible feeling, I don't want to have that feeling again, versus, you know what, I don't think this is the path for me and I'm okay with that? I don't think I could at the time. Looking back at it, I was kind of picking up odd odd jobs. I'd save money to go out there and I was basically only really working just to enjoy living in like living there that year mm-hmm. but i was then because i had more free time i was then taking opportunity to try and explore like audition opportunities or that kind of stuff and it was only when returning back because i had to like the, the the visa ran out i got back to my hometown and then i said okay what can i take from what i've just done what do i want to do with what I've just done, like looking back on it, what did I really like about that experience? What did I not like so much? Well, I didn't like the auditioning. That was kind of killing me. And also there isn't a whole bunch around here right now. Is there anything that I can take from that and build into the work that I've been doing? Because I'd I'd started a bit of that work before I left to go to Canada. So I already had begun to gather a bit of experience there. I then took what I'd learned and then tried to fold that in. So I then started running workshops that were connected to improv specifically. because I wanted an excuse to be able to do that and take everything that I was really excited about. And that like, it felt like a million kind of light bulbs and doors had opened. I just wanted to share that. So I just got really interested in then trying to run that. But I was just really hungry to go and do something that I thought other people would enjoy and that I would enjoy being part of. And and, and that's what then took me into that next stage, which I, which I was in for it least two or three years so you were essentially facilitating and teaching improv you've taken those kind of skills and brought them back when we kind of talk about those skills though kind of honing in on that again it's always easier to kind of in hindsight say yeah I I just took all the things I was good at and then did you actually sit down and make a list or what did that process look like was it much more a feel-based thing where you're like I love this I'm gonna I'm gonna do this so 
I did something which I think at the time for me was really uncharacteristic, which is I documented absolutely everything. And I don't think I'd ever, I, I did that when I studied in a classroom in university or, or at school. But when I went to go and do improv classes in Canada, I wrote down, I worked with a huge bunch of different teachers that all had different styles. And, and for anyone that's unfamiliar with it, you, there's short form and long form improv. And most people know short form. It's like, whose lines it anyway? It's short games that, are, you know, that are run very quickly uh, and normally with kind of a specific challenge wrapped around them that, you know, that the performers have to try and do. The thing that a lot of people don't realize about the purpose of short form, not just being like entertaining and for an audience to watch and enjoy is it teaches a lot of different core skills to make you a good improviser, right? In terms of, you know, free thinking, uh, listening, the active listening in terms of your partner on stage, building on ideas and collaboration, a ton, you know, tons of the different underlying rules. All of these games are basically designed to help uh, stretch the muscles, essentially, like pra you practice them. And I wrote down everything. I wrote notes of what the games were, why you did them, and what they were meant to encourage. And I had this then notebook of all these different ideas. And I also bought a couple of books on it, obviously, just because I was then by that point going full nerd off the deep end into, <laughs> into trying to understand it. And then I, I basically had a playbook of different skill areas that you could develop basically. And so I ran workshops that just that worked on all of that. And then by, by the nature of having to talk about those skills, get students to reflect on them, you're building them yourself, right? That's the, the you know, it's the core cool thing about teaching, right? Is that you can articulate them clearly to someone else. You can introduce a concept to someone else and you can explain it and not just one way, but in multiple different ways so that the, the, the student or anyone, an audience can understand it. Then you have a, full understanding of the topic right so i just by nature of having taken all this stuff and then trying to impart it onto other people my level of mastery at that point was enough to be able to provide them with with fundamentals as well but in doing all of that it was strengthening my skills in each of those things which i again at the time didn't realize was happening and so kind of you were following this excitement and it, it, by the sounds of it it's like you were really really passionate about it as well what was the point where you realized I can't keep keep doing this or what what was the point that then changed that to doing the work that you were doing to that kind of next next step the probably the same thing well two key factors i think the same thing that probably hits most people in their mid-20s which is what am i doing with my life right <laughs> a quarter life crisis exactly a hundred percent it was looking at other friends who had gone down the teaching route everyone's doing the same thing they're all asking the same questions as to like have i made the right choice am i happy in this most of the time they're not they're still finding their feet in in what works for them and their career paths that was a big one i was like am i is this the space that i want to stay in is this like can i build a career around this and the other one was money right and and for context and showing my age a bit i graduated in 2008 so thanks financial crash that impacted in terms of grad schemes in terms of because i looked at all of those things i was exploring lots of different options at that time there was definitely a squeeze and not just across you know grad programs everywhere right and the the art sector and the charity you know charity sectors particularly in smaller uh, smaller towns uh, is historically underfunded it was tough to, it was finding it really tough to make a living like i was i wasn't just teaching improv i was doing lots of different kind of workshops and, and lots of different programs but i recognized that I, did, I was working freelance at that point and I didn't have stability that I was starting to see what I perceived as stability in, in my peers. Having done that for a couple of years, I then started trying to look at, well, what would be a different, what other, what else could I do at this point? And by that time, I hadn't studied for a long time and I was starting to kind of recognize that maybe I wanted to go back and study again. And so that was, that was my next, that was my next choice. So you went to study and you... Did. I did. So I did, I did a master's in communications in Warwick. I recognized that I had a set of skills in the space that I've been working in, but I was also really interested in digital. I was also really interested. I'd always been interested in kind of tech skills, but I hadn't, like, we didn't have coding lessons in school when I went to school. It wasn't, that wasn't a thing yet. So I didn't have any specific coding skills at that point, but I was always kind of interested in that space. And the, the master's I did was allowing me to kind of again dive into the the academic thinking behind lots of communication theory right and 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 the tech sector i could basically start looking at ideas across marketing and digital you know th theories around 
the growth of Google, the growth of Facebook, all these kind of huge uh, digital organizations, which obviously were embedded into my kind of personal life. And my, uh, like I had that interest in that space. And the year doing the master's just meant that I could kind of go off the deep end studying that and then starting to broaden the skills. Like it was connecting. It felt like it was connecting with areas of interest that I'd had, but it was also pushing me into the areas that I, I hadn't really explored before. I didn't feel like I was confident. I knew much about. And with that kind of, because you talk a lot about like, you know, you you loved your master's, you loved this. And I think there might be a little bit of a bias of we, we tend to talk about kind of the, the most memorable, memorable things. But with those kind of, let's call them pathways that you could have gone down on, were there ones that were quite clear? Or how did you kind of after you've graduated, and I'm, I'm assuming at this point, probably a little bit better job market than 08 when you had just graduated uh, university. But how did you decide, okay, I just had this wonderful year. Now what? One thing that had started to become apparent to me was that I was interested in brands and branding and the impact of that on people's perception of you. And I think one of the things that I recognized in wanting to go and do a, a master's was that my undergraduate degree was up in Liverpool, but it wasn't at Liverpool Main University. It was at John Moore's. It was a really good degree. I had a good time, but I felt that the perception of the brand of the university had made a difference. And maybe I was wrong. Like, I have no idea. Like, I had lots of theories as to what was, maybe I hadn't been successful. But one of the things I had been concerned about was like, well, I hadn't gone to one of the big brand universities, right? So the choice to go and do the master's was a little bit trying to be strategic there around, I'm going to pick a red brick university or an institution, if I can, if I can get into it, that will add a brand that I've been involved, you know, that I was already starting to think about that. And then when I did the degree or did the master's, the value of that suddenly became apparent. I, what, I, what I started to study there was like, well, I think that obviously there is a thread there of, of what might give me a better chance. So at that point, when I then started to look at jobs, I, I didn't plan to stay in my hometown. I, by that point, I decided I was going to come, come down to London and, and look for more opportunities. I had always assumed I was going to go back into the arts because that's where my skill set had been. But when I then started looking at new roles, actually... I had never really explored learning and development at all. Like I hadn't really kind of tapped into the corporate, you know, whatever corporate learning looked like. And I started to see roles. And at the time they were, they were kind of like junior roles in that space, but working for organizations that specialized in, in people development or specifically learning and development. And that was a huge light bulb moment. And the first role that I had um, after the masters was working for a company called impact. And again, just a, an amazing group of people. For me, what I like about what I do at GA has an awful lot rooted in the people that supported me and, and what I learned when I was uh, working for Impact. But they had a huge broad selection of different clients across a ton of different uh, industries and sectors, one of which was Google. And I'd written my thesis for my master's on Google. And part of the thing that kind of then connected the dots there and got me the opportunity to sit down and talk to them was about what I'd written about there and, and the fact that they were working with them. So that was by chance that, you know, I didn't do that deliberately with the opportunity to try and work for them. But that I believe was the thing that led me to them as an organization. And as soon as I started working for them, I realized what I had been doing in the art space. So much of that was then applicable in this completely different environment where ultimately there is much more financial investment. There is much more of an in, in, you know an industry backed by need with large organisations that have the capacity to kind of you know fund that as well. So it yeah, but that that was a huge moment and it changed my career di direction well fundamentally. But I think in terms of you know when we kind of talk about it, I think it's really easy to potentially say oh, there's there's an element of of chance there, which with you know you having written your thesis topic and then ended up the opportunity to work with Google and then for Google. But in terms of the, the role that you picked at Impact, was that something where you were really intentional about what kind of company you wanted to work for, what kind of team you wanted to work for? It was the people. I was like, the role looked interesting, but I also, because I felt I was a junior, I was essentially doing what I think most of our students at GA do, right? They go, they are particularly career changing. They're going into a junior role in a new space. And I felt that I was lucky to be given an opportunity by a company. Like, you know, I was at that point where I felt I didn't know very much about the space yet. I didn't know what my value add or my, you know, what, 
how much of what I did have was transferable. The role looked interesting. I think the, the first role I had with them was like a marketing intern. It was it was not specifically connected to facilitation or, or working on any of their programs, but it was an opportunity to work with them. And when I interviewed with them, that's when I can rem- I still remember distinctly being like, they seem great. The people seem really nice. I feel like I will be supported here. And I guess that that's the thing for, I suppose, anyone listening to this and, and thinking about going into a new role or, or going into, you know, taking that shift and, and being brave and, and, and changing organization or changing career direction. Do you feel like the, the people that you're going to work with will be vested in, you know, will be there to support you in that and recognize the challenge that's in that, but recognize the opportunity. And, and I had two line managers at the time, but also a couple of other people who were just exceptional mentors uh, at impact they were just really good people very invested in me as a person and I'm, i feel like in terms of my values in work that resonated with me hugely i suddenly felt incredibly supported very excited very interested engaged in everything that was available to me and as a consequence that's why i think i did okay like it, it was i was i wasn't with them for a, a particularly long period of time but the time was again relatively short, but I, I feel like I learned a huge amount from them, but it was the people that I was surrounded by and that left a huge imprint. That, In terms of what I would say to myself now or anywhere else I was going to go, I think it started at the Hive in the charity space. I worked with some wonderful people and I was like, wow, is it just because of this company that I'm happy here because of these lovely people? It was only that I went away from that space and then went to another company. It was like, actually, no, there are really lovely people in some organizations. I am, I'm sticking with this. And that, that's going to be like a guiding principle, whatever work I'm doing. And I kind of want to tap into that guiding principle because I, I personally think there seems to be something that's undervalued in the job search around that, that people element where I don't, I forget the exact statistic, but job satisfaction is directly correlated to your line manager, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, but we tend to, I feel like, undervalue when going for opportunities, the role that the team will have. And if you kind of want to potentially, you've, you've got an amazing team at General Assembly, um, but also in, in your previous jobs, how you've kind of, now that you've found that principle, you've like, okay, I think, you know, I've, I've got that guiding, that felt good. If I'm in a place where I am supported and I can explore, that's where I'll kind of, I guess I use the word grow, but also just the, the opportunity to explore different areas and develop in those. How has that kind of now shaped and guided to where you are today and the work that you're doing today? I think the the nice thing about arriving at GA at the time that I did, and I think probably still hopefully for anyone that joins now, is that like it moves at a real pace and there was a lot of change happening in terms of continued growth. When I joined, it was just before we'd moved into our much bigger campus space, which we, we had previously been spread out across two different locations across London. And it was the first time all of our courses were consolidated into one location down in Allgate East. And it was also when we were just about to be starting to launch our first data science immersive program. So there was a lot of change. And also I came into that space not knowing a huge amount about each of those disciplines, right? I, like. I felt very lucky. I believe I was hired for my understanding and interest in learning and education, right? That was the the skills that I had been developing. By that point, I'd been working in e-learning as well. I'd, I'd done a lot of work, both face-to-face and online, nonprofit sector, and for a number of different kind of organizations by that point. I felt the skills that I was being brought in for was for those skills rather than, well, I wasn't a, a web developer for certain. And I, you know, my understanding of UX, for example, was very limited at the beginning. But to be able to be surrounded by people who know their stuff and are just absolutely committed to it. And it's a space where juniors, but people who may have no experience with it, are learning these skills. So as long as I went in prepared to listen really carefully and trust that I knew an awful lot less about these specific subject areas and the people I was working with, the value that I would be able to add would be around the education kind of side of things around supporting adult learning and development that I had started to accrue. And also all the other kind of elements wrapped around coaching and support that I developed with working with an awful lot of young people and, and kind of in the art space. So we talked a little bit about this kind of before we before we turned the, the mic on, but like we chatted a bit about you were trying to say, I think politely say like being intentional, when to lean into supporting someone or when to not and when to give someone the space to figure it out themselves. I think most of that again, without sounding like I'm now going to turn your podcast into another one that says yes and life or yes and (laughs) going to do an improv class. But like that bit about knowing or trying to find the balance of when you support someone 
when you lean in with your advice or your experience or you get, you step back and you give them the space to explore what's going well for them, what they're struggling with or how they come up with solutions. For me, so much of that came from the, the skills that I learned around improv, around good scene work is about collaboration with someone else, making someone else look good, but also giving space for their ideas to flourish and, and expand. And I don't know where else that thinking, I can't trace where else that thinking would have come from other than that time when I was really exploring that. But yeah, I, I think now the benefit of being in an organ, like the, the tech space obviously it prides itself on moving at the speed of light, being somewhere where there is an awful lot of change happening all the time. There's a requirement to be able to try and figure things out and come up with, come up with new solutions. I, I feel that that keeps me very engaged and it keeps me very interested. And I'm also surrounded by other people who really like that. So that's, and that's not necessarily, as we talked at the beginning, it's not always easy. And that's, I guess, probably the point. And there's definitely challenges and frustrations with it, but that's also the point as well. I'd like, I don't believe in this thing as like the perfect job where everything is absolutely flawless. That's crazy. Everyone has to do things that they don't like or find easy. They're, everyone has challenges in the work and everyone gets bored, but they, you know, that stuff changes for you. Um, I think the important thing is to pay attention to it. Like how, how do you feel broadly about things? Not every, you know, maybe measuring it every day is probably not so healthy, but like, what's your broad sense of how you feel about the work you're doing? And sometimes it can be quite subtle that that changes where you're no longer happy with it. And actually it takes someone maybe asking you or getting some good coaching or talking to your friends about it when you suddenly realize, actually I need something different or I need to move in a new direction. But yeah, it's, I think it's important just to keep asking yourself about those things. And are you still growing? Are you, and maybe you don't need to grow so much at this time. Like we were, again, we're, we're in this, like the, emphasis and pressure on people to always be pushing themselves i read a really good thing uh, a really good article quite recently that was challenging the preconception about particularly in the time of covid and kind of when we have all this suddenly free time that we should be optimizing ourselves and turn you know t going to every yeah. yoga class online write that book that you've always wanted to write <laughs> exactly and i read this fantastic article which was basically like no like don't do that this is a crisis and, and maybe just focus on you being okay, your family being okay, that you are looking after yourselves. Stop trying to do a bit more at this point and just like wait until the dust settles in this. And that spoke to me quite a lot. We're pressured into living our best lives and being our best selves and no one can hear me rolling my eyes. But I just think it's important that we don't always have to be pushing for that next level relentlessly it's okay to be okay with where you are right now and as long as you're doing the checking in with yourself and reflecting on that and building that habit then i think you'll know i think it's an interesting one because there is like you said there is this constant chase of like happiness and pursuit of constantly evolving and constantly bettering yourself and i almost feel like being content is 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 a wonderful goal like just smoothing out those those peaks and troughs i think is is a goal in itself so you mentioned, you know, like like anything, nothing is perfect, but identifying some of the things about your job, what is it that makes you love your job? It, again, sounds really trite, but it's the people. The nature of being able to come into contact with lots and lots of talent. Well, it's, it's, it's on multiple fronts, right? So we have the kind of the core team um, who work across all of our programs. The amazing thing is, is we have one, I believe, just fantastic leadership at a local level in terms of how we're supported on a day-to-day. -day. A tremendous amount of, I uh, feel very privileged to work with my boss, Julian, and the way that he has built the kind of the, the London and, and Europe team that I work on. The the people, consequently, that he has then brought into the organization, I've got to kind of meet or, or potentially kind of been involved in hiring as well. It's the the willingness and the people engaged. Ultimately, we're lucky we work around something that is very purpose-driven. We're helping people to change their careers and to support them, take a risk. It's hard work, most like, particularly on the career changing, it requires an awful lot of dedication and effort and commitment and challenge, right? Change, like, we talk a lot to students about the idea that in most circumstances, tools and products and services are designed to make our lives easier and feel more comfortable. Like you click on Amazon, something turns up at your door the next day or Deliveroo or Uber or whatever. It's instantaneous. It requires no thought. It's instantly gratifying. Learning is not instantly gratifying most of the time, especially if it's hard and it should be hard. So 
people come into the classroom and they suddenly go back through something that hopefully most of their time they're not experiencing that maybe that level of discomfort of I'm out of my depth. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm worried whether I'm going to succeed. I've invested money in this and care and all of this matters to me. Like that's a lot for people to deal with. But the wonderful thing on the other side of it is, is like you see that kind of change. So you can see tremendous change and tremendous kind of like growth for people. So we're lucky that we get to be part of that process. Like you're instantly connected to something where you're seeing people, you know, grow. And 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 so as a team, we're lucky, but I'm surrounded by people who are really invested in, in making that happen. And then obviously all of the different instructors that we get to work with as part of that, that either are with us for a long time, which is always wonderful, or they might be with us just for a short amount of time because they're in industry and that, you know, they come to teach with us for a bit and then they go back out um, to do other things. That constant flow of, new people coming into the space and that kind of fresh ideas that keeps it really interesting and it, it keeps you on your toes as well and that's not even including all the myriad of students from all walks of life all backgrounds that that are there to bet themselves and um also bring a tremendous amount of knowledge and fun and different ideas um, and challenge as well right they, they, everyone's bringing their own things and like i said before you might have 10 years experience in something 15 years experience and then be looking to try and do something different the challenges that, that that might pose you whilst you're learning might be quite significant and helping people through that, talking to them about it, trying to help them understand what they're going through and, and being part of that process. It's not necessarily easy, but it, it can be really, really rewarding. And kind of to, to wrap things up, in terms of kind of looking at that student experience, I'm quite interested in you get people from all walks of life. They, they typically already have a career in a different industry. How do you see kind of this question's twofold. The first is, are there any kind of trends and markers where people realize like, oh, I, I would like a career change or maybe a career change is necessary. And the second there is kind of that role of the beginner's mindset and and tapping kind of into growth mindset, which is a passionate topic of both of ours um, and how, how that kind of comes together and all of a sudden being like realizing, okay, I need a change to them being like, oh, this change is hard, but actually this is how... I'm going to, I'm going to grow, um, and learn from that as well. Yeah. I, to your first kind of point, I think one of the things that you see quite a lot, or I've definitely seen historically is people that are seeing the writing on the, I say the writing on the wall, but like the changing of the times in their industry, right? We've had lots of people from, from different industries that have changed rapidly or that the job market is drying up or, and, and certainly now, I mean, it is very hard right now. And I say this, obviously as we're kind of like a few months into the world being kind of changed by COVID, it's like it's as, and again, through gritted teeth and rolling eyes, I hate the phrase, the new normal already, but like whatever mm -hmm. on earth is going to, however the landscape changes on the other side of this, there's going to be a huge amount of change in industry and, and, and different roles suddenly being uh, no longer as needed or certainly new roles emerging that, that are a requirement. I've seen a lot of that historically before any of this happened, right? industries changing and people spotting that they should probably get ahead of that and look to other roles where there's an awful awful lot of growth and demand so that is a i guess a a key thing for people to bear in mind uh, i i don't i don't really have advice that i would want to give anyone in relation to that because i think it's too broad right the the, the your own interest in knowing whatever career you're in right now and understanding what opportunities are there for you, how you might be able to pivot the skills that you've got. And I think that's one thing that people tend to overlook is I feel like in, like in my own journey, there was lots of skills that I, would I was developing that I had no idea mapped into a completely different career space that required me in the end, ending up in one of those roles for that light bulb moment to go off. If I had been probably more intentional, it's to going to do the research of like what different roles are out there, job titles away from my own, and going and looking at them and, and looking at kind of job descriptions, like what do those job descriptions entail? What do you have to be able to do? What do they demonstrate? What do they require? And obviously not just the junior versions of them, but, but junior all the way up to senior. Can you see what that kind of progression in a career looks like? And what out of those skills do you already have? Because then there might be, I think when there is a lot of alignment across those things, like if it turns out you have an awful lot of the same skills as another job in a completely different industry, there might be a lot of overlapping interests there as well. Um, and that should be something that you, you should consider and explore. I by no means consider myself a UX designer at all. I haven't, I haven't studied, I haven't done one of our courses. I'm like, I have not been in industry, but 
I know that if I didn't do what I was doing right now, I would very much love to get like my design skills up. I need to really go practice with sketch and, and, you know, learn the fundamentals of UI as well. But like my interest in people and research and, and, and all of that kind of emerging from trying to build good learning experiences and, and understanding what that looks like. There's actually a ton of what I'm interested in that, that maps onto being a good UX researcher, for example, or, you know, being involved in those processes. So seeing again, trying to map out those, what, what doors could open for you or what doors, what would you have to do to open a few more for yourself? And I think obviously GA is, is one example and one option, but people choose that because self-study is hard, but self-study is also completely possible. Like we have, this information for most of us, we're very fortunate to, 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 with access to the, the internet and the right tools. Many, many people, you can go and develop so many of those skills yourself um, if you're prepared to put the effort in. And that's maybe the, my last, that's probably, my, that'll be my last point because I'm conscious of our capacity, certainly my capacity just to talk at you for hours on end. Yeah. Well, um, I also feel like with, with that too is um, one of the points I kind of want to bring up there is not only what, what doors are are there to open, but if all doors were to open for you, do you actually even want that role? Because I feel like a lot of times people don't even ask that. If like, if I were to be promoted, would I even want uh, want that that job, I think. Um, yeah. so, so kind of rounding up here, in terms of the last three questions that I kind of ask, is there a book that has changed your life or shifted your mindset? Yes, definitely. There's a couple. I'll, I'll go with one because I, I was thinking a little bit about this in terms of the work that I've done over the last few years, I think the progress principle is by Teresa Amabile. She is a fantastic creativity and innovation researcher. She, she's done a tremendous, she's done an awful lot of, of academic writing in that space. I first came across her when I was doing my masters. It was one of the theorists that was that was introduced to me there, and that was specifically around creativity and innovation. The progress principle is a really, I think, a fantastic piece of research around what is it that motivates people in in their work what is it that drives them and it's essentially a, a longitudinal study across uh, a number of different organizations of different sizes and in different sectors where they asked uh, every day they asked um, employees to complete uh, essentially anonymously these uh, set of questions which was around a few a few quantitative questions about how the day was but then a very specifically open question uh, tell, tell us something about your day and it was it, it didn't it didn't wasn't necessarily positive wasn't necessarily negative, but it was just open enough to try and capture what the standout moment was from that day. And the book just paints this amazing picture. It basically gives you these insights into what is it that actually matters to people in their work and in their in their work lives. And it's very revealing. Uh, I won't go into too much more about it, um, but in terms of understanding how to build spaces that people feel excited to be in or to be part of something where they feel valued and they feel like they're making a contribution. That had a very, made a lot of light bulbs go off in my head about what actually matters to me in my work, but also I think helped carry on or carry over into kind of how I try and work with people and all the kinds of teams that I want to be able to be part of and support as well. And then one more, just because, you know, I clearly haven't talked enough. <laughs> I recently I recently have been talking about Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Lallau. Yeah, I just think it's very, very interesting. It's it's a, a really well-considered exploration of, of the history of and the evolution of organizations and it essentially maps the various stages of human evolution and how at different points of our evolution we have been able to build different types of organization. And it kind of looks at how the modern organization, it, it's not like one phase is, we don't move from one phase into the other. So each phase, there are elements of each phase built into each phase that has come since. Um, and then it just talks about uh, the idea of, of the future of organizations and what that might look like based on how we have been able to evolve them and expand them. I'm sure there are some people that think it's uh, a bit wishful thinking, but the optimist in me is kind of excited to explore that a bit more and, and see what how we might be able to, again, look at organizations and the way they're designed. And kind of speaking of light bulbs going off. I think that's such a lovely visual. Always, I kind of have like a sound effect, like a ding. But in terms of kind of light bulbs going off and evolving, what do you think your secret to success is? Play. I am much better at everything I do when I try and remind myself to be playful. What does that actually mean though? So I can't remember who told me it, but someone, one of, one of the many wonderful people who have supported me in my work so far uh, told me learning and development is not life and death and that just stuck with me 
try not to take yourself and it too seriously. You're not saving lives. It's not surgery, right? You're you're here to help and support other people bring that. And and the other part being, and we talk to students a lot about this a lot. No one is at their best when they're work when they're giving a hundred percent. Right. So whatever anyone says about working at a hundred percent capacity all the time, how when have you ever felt good in your work when you're working at absolutely hundred percent capacity? That's normally when you're at breaking point. Like trying to find that balance between the sweet spot of working hard but being able to do it sustainably uh, in a way that means you can do it consistently, I think is is a is a real challenge. And knowing yourself and knowing the challenges within an organization so that as your role changes and grows or as the team grows, are you able to articulate your needs and help be part of ensuring that that doesn't change too dramatically, right? Because it's normally when people get, you know, someone leaves an organization or suddenly something changes where your workload increases like exponentially, that's when people suddenly can't cope with it for long periods of time and they don't want to stay anymore and they leave. You know, something changes and, and they'll quit. So being able to try and, drive that where you can and you might not always be successful with that but like trying to be part of that conversation which like bringing bringing in the element of play yeah and and don't take it so seriously i probably sounded quite serious in most of this conversation about you know what i think is important but i should probably shut up and just remember to laugh about it as well and and not take it too seriously and lastly, kind of when you realized or potentially when you had that quarter life crisis, let's call it, what advice would you have liked to hear when you were at that point? You still have huge capacity to change. I think most people are hugely influenced about what they think about learning, what they think about themselves from their early school experiences, right? And their early family and school experiences, right? That's what we, we, we are all either lumbered with or, or blessed with, right? To varying degrees. I felt very lucky with my like my family environment. I, I found school at points really hard. And I think as my career changed, I've been really lucky to have changed. I've changed a lot and I've grown an awful lot along the way. When people come into GA and they're learning for the first time in a really long time, they're just dragging an awful lot of what their experiences when they were younger were into the classroom with them. And a lot of the time you have to help them forget that or start again or get a clean slate. And I wish, maybe I probably wouldn't have listened to that person at the time anyway, but being reassured that it's still possible to change hugely and, and grow and continue learning and that it's okay to talk about or like recognize that those early things may have a big impact, but you can still change things. You just need the right supportive environment. Amazing. What a wonderful way to kind of round things off. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to be on this podcast. My absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thank you very much for me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. And I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed sitting down to chat with Callum. He continuously challenges my mindset and I'm so grateful that I was able to have him on this podcast. If you loved this conversation or it has helped you in any way, please do share it with some friends, colleagues, family. Take a screenshot and share that you're listening to this episode and what you loved about it on Instagram. If there's someone in particular that you would like me to interview on this podcast, chat to on this podcast, you can also just send me a DM on Instagram and I'd love to see some of the modern day rebels that you have in your life. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to Modern Day Rebels on Apple Podcasts, follow the podcast on Spotify, or listen on your favorite podcast app. You can find all the links mentioned in this episode in the show notes, and I would be incredibly grateful if you could please write a review as this helps me record more episodes and makes it easier for others to find this podcast. See you next Monday.